Good morning. Um, worship team, that was wonderful. Thank you for taking us into that place. Just felt his presence and his love in such a real way. Just thank you for coming early every week, you guys. Can we just give them a hand? I know they don't like being pointed out, but still basking in it. Okay, I'm Clara, and I'm one of the teachers here. And this morning, I want to start our talk by not making too much noise. Take the earring off. So if I were to ask you to make a list of the world's best-known artists, what would be some of the names that you guys would think of? Yes. She's definitely on my list. Rousseau. Rousseau. De Gaulle. Michelangelo. Rembrandt. Da Vinci. Okay, good. Now, definitely on our list, we should put um, Vincent van Gogh, right? Um, he had a, a whole, uh, like, museum in Amsterdam dedicated to his art. I mean, this guy's is amazing. Hey, Stuart, do we have a PowerPoint this morning? Okay, thanks. Um, now, not everybody knows that Vincent was the son of a, a Protestant preacher and that he was actually studied theology. And he wanted to grow up to be a pastor. And actually, he was a pastor and an evangelist to uh, coal miners in Belgium for a period of his life. You guys know that? I did some studies. On it. I didn't know. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, um, you know, many of us know Van Gogh as the artist who struggled with mental illness. Uh, he was put in a sane asylum several times, and the first time he went in was at that point that he discovered this desire to learn and study art. And it was there they decided, you know what, I'm going to do art, and I'm going to do it to use it to lead people to God. Now, um, later on in life, he continued to struggle through mental illness, and there's one incident where he was chasing uh, one of his artist friends with a razor. And he felt so terrible the next day that he even thought to do some harm to his friend, which he didn't, that he ended up cutting off a portion of his right. A lot of you guys know that about him. He did some self-portraits of him with um, bandages over his ear. And from that point on, he always, his self-portraits were this side. But anyway... Um, he painted probably uh, like 750 paintings, 1,600 drawings, and um, sold one of his paintings for $50 million. Now, in his lifetime, he only sold two of his paintings. And there's this story about one time he was in amazing amount of debt, and he went to one of his creditors. He had gotten a wheelbarrow and put a bunch of his paintings and takes it to the creditor and say, hey, will you uh, take these in exchange for my debt? And the creditor, you know, didn't know that what was in that wheelbarrow was enough to buy a whole city. That eventually those paintings were going to be crazy expensive. And so he just laughed at him. And he sent him off. Now, his wife, when she heard what her husband had done, got really mad at him. She said, you should have at least kept the wheelbarrow. It was worth something. <laughs> so in life... I mean, the issue is that a lot of us don't understand when we're looking at something valuable. And the things that are valuable, sometimes we look as being insignificant. 
you know, if you take a small boy and you give him the option of this big plastic dinosaur toy or a red ruby, he's going to take the cheap toy. So, you know, think about the people that our society say are important and that you will recognize their picture when it goes up on the screen. Um, let's put the picture up there, Stuart of Justin. Yeah, this guy. You guys know who he is? Okay, some do. <laughs> okay, this is um, Justin um, who recently deleted his instant uh, gram account. He has a 80 million followers follow him, Justin Bieber. And he took himself off of Instagram because some of the people were sending him mean um, messages because he recently broke up with his girlfriend. I mean, I think about it like, okay, 80 million people that do not have a life and need to stalk other people. <laughs> this is crazy. So now, look at this next person. Now, before you say who you think she is, are you sure you know who she is? Anybody want to give a, a guess? That is Rosa Parks. Now, she is uh, certainly somebody that we should think about and remember the U.S. Congress um, nominated her the mother of modern-day civil rights movement. She was the gal who was in the bus, and she was just tired of being um, neglected and overlooked and abused, and uh, she decided not to give up her seat to a white man, and she started the Montgomery bus boycott by being arrested and getting things going. Now, this is a quote from her in a radio interview I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen of Montgomery, Alabama. Okay, let's put the next man up there. Do some of you recognize him? This is Mohammed Yunus. He's a Bangladesh entrepreneur, banker, economist, civil society leader who was awarded the Nobel, Prize, Nobel Peace Prize for starting the uh, Gramian banks, which are called, uh, which means village bank. And what these banks did is they provided um, loans, cheap loans, for really poor people that couldn't normally get loans to start a business. Now, 95% of the people who took advantage of these loans were women, and they were able to, through um, starting their small businesses, get their family out of poverty. Now, you know, one of the reasons why I love being a follower of Christ is because Jesus shows us how to value the things that really matter in life. You know, the more I experience his word in my mind, in my heart, through my life, the more I get that what the world says is important a lot of times doesn't match up with what is important to Jesus. You know, when we begin our journey with Christ, this is one of the things that happens. We begin to see more and more that what's important, significant to God, isn't what everybody else around me is saying is all that important. You know, what the world says, this is success, Jesus might say, uh, this is a failure. And what the world says, this is bad, Jesus would say, no, this actually is kind of good. You know, what the world says, this is success, Jesus would say, it's a trap. Now, we've been going through a series from First and Second Kings called Saying Yes to God, and today I'm going to conclude that series. And um, we're going to be looking at a gentleman, Elijah, and somebody else from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at um, saying yes to what really matters to God.
So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence this morning. You are at work. And this morning you have an invitation for each one of us, something you want us to pay attention to, to take in and to be changed by it. So Holy Spirit, I just pray you help us to be listening and looking for what you're saying to us. And that we would respond, Lord, from a heart of gratitude. Lord, I pray for our guests. I pray that they particularly will feel your welcome and your invitation, Lord, of love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read a passage. It's a bit long, but in order to get the story, I think we need to read through it. It's from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now Naaman was general of the army under the king of Aram. He was important to his master, who held him in the highest esteem, because he was by him that God had given victory to Aram, a truly great man, but afflicted with leprosy. It so happened that Aram, on one of its raiding expeditions against Israel, captured a young girl who became a maid to Naaman's wife. One day she said to her mistress, Oh, if only my master could keep the, meet the prophet of Samaria, he would be healed of leprosy. Naaman went straight to his master and reported what the girl from Israel had said. Well, then go, said the king of Aram, and I'll send a letter of introduction to the king of Israel. So he went off, taking with him about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and ten sets of clothes. Naaman delivered the letter to the king of Israel. The letter read, When you get this letter, you'll know that I've personally sent my servant Naaman to you. Heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel had read the letter, he was terribly upset, ripping his robe to pieces. He said, Am I a god with the power to bring death or life that I get orders to heal this man from his disease? What's going on here? That's kings trying to pick a fight. That's what. Elijah, the man of God, heard what had happened. And the king of Israel was so distressed that he ripped his robe to shreds. He sent word to the king, Why are you so upset, ripping your robes like this? Send him to me, so he'll learn that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman, with his horses and chariots, arrived and styled and stopped at Elijah's door. Elijah sent out a servant to meet him with this message. Go to the river Jordan and immerse yourself seven times. Your skin will be healed and you'll be good as new. Naaman lost his temper. He turned on his heel saying, I thought he'd personally come out and meet me. Call on the Lord of God and wave his hands over the diseased spot and get rid of the disease. The Damascus rivers, Abana and Farfar, are cleaner by far than any of the rivers in Israel. Why not bathe in them? I'd at least get clean. He stomped off, mad as a hornet. But his servants caught up with him and said, Father, 
If the prophet had asked you to do something hard and heroic, wouldn't you have done it? So why not this simple wash and be clean? So he did. He went down and immersed himself in the Jordan seven times, following the orders of the holy man. His skin was healed. This was like the skin of a little baby. He was as good as new. He then went back to the holy man, he and his entourage, stood before him and said, I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God anywhere on earth other than the God of Israel. In gratitude, let me give you a gift. So here's what we read in the first verse. Naaman was general of the army under the king of Aram. He was important to his master who held him in the highest esteem because it was by him that God had given victory to to Aram a truly great man, but afflicted with leprosy. So obviously Naaman is this awesome man in the eyes of the king. I mean, he's a great strategist, leader, soldier. And, you know, just as an aside, the Bible doesn't ever exhaustively give us answers to the common question of why do good people suffer? You know, we get partial answers like, okay, well, people suffer with illnesses or tragedy because, you know, it helps them to become better people. Or we know that God uses suffering and illnesses at time and lies because it helps us to become more compassionate people. Or it helps us to become more dependent on God. You know, we know that God often heals people, and so it brings glory to God whenever he does that. And we know, too, that God receives glory whenever People are faithful even when they don't get healed. You know, we have a bunch of partial answers to the question, why do good people suffer? But I don't think any of them are exhaustively enough. And we're told in this story by Naaman that he's a good and great man, but we don't know why this illness is part of his life. And in our lives, When our loved ones have illnesses, when we experience serious physical conditions or go through very horrific events in our lives, we really might get partial answers. But one thing we do know from the text is that our status in life has nothing to do with helping us necessarily through suffering. You know, it really doesn't matter if you own a really big house and you've paid it off. It doesn't matter if you have a number of degrees at the end of your name. It doesn't really matter if you can do anything better than somebody else sitting next to you. When we're diagnosed with cancer, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if you have the perfect job, if you can bowl 300 at the bowling alley. When our spouse says, I want a divorce, when the doctor says you're going to miscarry again, or your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you suddenly. It just really, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have an iPhone 7, or you can buy all your clothes at Dillard's, or you have super cool rugs on your living room floor. So verse 1, no matter who we are, what we possess, there are holes in our lives that we cannot meet well with disposition or possessions. 
Now, Lee Strobel, he's a very popular Christian writer, apologetic person. And when, um, before he was a Christian, uh, he worked for the Chicago Tribune as their legal affairs correspondent. And, you know, he wasn't raised in the church. And so God was an irrelevant conversation. As far as he was concerned, wasn't important. Now, his wife became a believer after they'd gotten married, and she tried very much to try to reach him, but he just said, why bother? My life is great. I have a beautiful wife, beautiful job, awesome house. And so this is what he said in his pre-Christian life. You know, you can drive that way so long as the road in front of you is straight and true. But if you hit a curb, you better have some kind of guidance system. So when Lee Strobel's dad died, he hit his curb. And he realized he had no guidance system. No amount of his accomplishments, successes, vacations was going to help him get through that hole. He needed God. Now, Naaman in our story is someone who is at a point of his life where he's very successful and honored by the king even. And yet he's facing something that is just pretty overwhelming. And when we face things, tragedies, in those times we realize our achievements, our accomplishments, our uh, funds, our bank account, none of that really makes much of a difference. And we realize, here I am, I need you, God. So we read in verse 2, it so happened that Aram, on one of his raiding expeditions against Israel, captured a young girl who became a maid to Naaman's wife. Now this is a really interesting detail, and the contrast is hilarious. Here is this little slave girl who has the answer to this formidable giant of a general, Naaman. And I think it's worth noting that God finds beauty and importance and significance in things that we would otherwise ignore or think is unimportant. Now, it would be hard to find someone less significant in this period of history than this little girl. She was a little girl. And in that time, youth was considered unimportant, and the elder you were, the older you were, the more honorable you were and more desired. She was a little girl. And in that time, women were inferior to men. She was a slave. She had no freedom. She was from the tribe of Israel, who at that time was weak and the enemy of Aram. She was so unimportant and so insignificant, she's not even given a name. It would be hard to find someone less insignificant than this little girl in the Mid and Eastern times. And yet she has the solution for the problem that this great man named and had. And she speaks of her God. So we continue to see the contrast in verses 6 to 8. Naaman delivered the letter to the king of Israel. The letter read, When you get this letter, you'll know that I'm personally sent by my servant Naaman to you. Heal him of his leprosy. So the king of Syria thinks what a lot of us think. You've got to know somebody way up there to get favors. You want to land a good job, you need to know some of the big people to get ahead. But as followers of Christ, we think differently. Who's really important? I want to tell you a story. 
when uh, Randy and I were in college, at Westmont College, we started a, um, a ministry called the Potter's Clay. And incidentally, they just recently invited us to go speak at their 40th year anniversary. Can you imagine that? Anyway, so while we were there, uh, we started this organization, and it was for the purpose of ministering to the poor in Ensenada. And after we graduated, we became missionaries and went to Ensenada to continue the work there. And while we were there, um, there was a TV channel crew from Santa Barbara that traveled down to Mexico to um, take footage of our ministry because they had begun to hear of it, even as young as it was, and they wanted to take footage of what we were doing. Unfortunately, the crew had a head-on collision with a Mexican uh, family, and the Mexican driver was killed. And the person driving in the American car was the journalist, and he was immediately put into jail. And the reason why they did that was because until he was not uh, culpable, he was guilty. And so they put him into jail now. In the early 80s, the jails in Mexico were horrific. I don't know what they're like now, but it was your greatest nightmare. And um, they did not give you food, did not give you a bed. Unless your family and friends provided that for you, you were on your own. And so um, we immediately sent team members, and we went there saying, can we please have access uh, to talk with this um, young man? I mean, he just had an accident. <laughs> and, you know, in there in the jail, they would throw the murderers in with taxi baiters. I mean, they were all together, so there was no, you know, we're going to be nice to you because, you know, Maybe you, you know. And so he was scared to death. And they wouldn't let us go in there. We said, well, okay, we're able to pay a bail. You know, we're Americans. And so one of our team members even spoke to the mayor to try to get access. And we could not get access to see this gentleman until someone said, you know, talk to Sister Rosa. Now, Sister Rosa is this woman at that time. She was in her late 40s, poor, single mother, who was a missionary to the poor. And she said, no problem. Just mention my name, and you'll get in. So we sent a team in there, and they said, um, Hermana Rosa nos mandó. You know, Sister Rosa said we could come. Oh, the guards let the team in, and we were able to deliver a bed and clothing and talk to him, tell him it's going to be okay, we're working on it. Right, So what we didn't know was that Amrana Rosa uh, would regularly go to the jail and not only care for the inmates, but she would care for the guards who were um, very poorly paid. So sometimes it's the little people to get you into places that the rich can't. Now I want to talk about somebody else. This is a man that we've honored, John F. Kennedy, when he died, when he was shot. But I don't know how many of you know, but on that same day that John F. Kennedy was killed, a very important man was killed, C.S. Lewis. Well, he died. He wasn't killed. He died on the same day. And on the day of his funeral, C.S. Lewis, who many of you know, he has changed millions of people's lives through his writings and his lectures. Very few people, a handful of people, went to his funeral. It's interesting what the world notes and doesn't note. And yet, this is the way of Christ. Christ was humble, and he sees things differently 
as to what is valuable in life. Princess Diana died on August 31, 1997. Five days later, Mother Teresa died. And if you to look at the video footage of those two funerals, there is no comparison. Diana trumped anything that could have been done for Mother Teresa. Verse 3. One day she said to her mistress, Oh, if only my master could meet the prophet of Samaria, he would be healed of leprosy. And here's this great man, clueless of how to get healing, and this unnamed slave girl has the answer. You know, sometimes we run the risk in life to ignore where wisdom is found. And sometimes because, you know, maybe they're from a different political feeling than I am, or maybe because there's some problems in their lives, and, you know, I'm not really sure I want to listen to them. And, you know, God uses some interesting people to speak into our lives. Verses 5 to 6, Well, then go, said the king of Aram, and I'll send a letter of introduction to the king of Israel. So he went off, taking with him about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and then 10 sets of clothes. In today's terms, Naaman was offering anywhere from 2 to $3 million for his healing. And so we see in these verses the importance that their culture, and I would say our culture, puts in money, and the faith that we put in money. We think that it's going to make things all right, and it's going to make us happy. You know, they, did a, they do surveys on freshman college students all the time. In the last 40 years, they did a survey on a freshman college asking them, what do you think is most valuable in life? 73.4% listed being financially well off is number two. Probably want to know what number one was. It was actually to have a family. So are our college freshmen accurately perceiving the world? Now remember one of the wonderful things about this journey with Jesus is the longer we walk with him, the clearer it becomes to us what is really important in life. And sometimes what the world says is achievements, he says it's a trap. Now I want to ask this question. I want you to be honest. You don't have to say it out loud, but just pay attention to the honest answer of your heart. Do you believe that the wealthier you are, the happier you will be? Now, obviously, in countries where there's severe poverty, like India or Bangladesh, a little bit more would help. You know, we need to have our basic needs taken care of, food, rest, shelter, social contact, to feel content and safe. Researchers in the United States, Canada, Europe, they did research and they discovered no link between the happiness once people reach and the levels of comfort in life. So what they're finding is that if you have your basic needs met, having a little bit more money is not going to make you happier. Apart from the very poor, we're finding that more is diminishing in return. So you get that one piece of a cheesecake 
the Cheesecake Factory is not quite as gratifying as the second or third piece, if you have it all in one spot. You know, after you get your first Hermes purse, which costs $220,000, you don't get quite as happy when you get your third or fourth. The law of diminishing returns. Forbes lists the 100 wealthiest people in America whose average worth is a billion dollars are only slightly, only slightly happier than the average American. It's not hard to find people who are insanely wealthy and extremely unhappy. John D. Rockefeller. I've made many millions, but they've brought me no happiness. Amy Vanderbilt. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Henry Ford. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie. Millionaires seldom smile. A 10-year study of patients with suicidal intentions was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. One of the 15 major factors for contributing to suicidal tendencies is having great financial resources. The risk of suicide increases with increased resources. So where do people find their happiness? There's a great book, if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it, called The Purpose Driven Life, written by Rick Warren. And in there he basically just says, this is what Jesus teaches when we find our purpose in life and why we're here, we will experience happiness. Living out of a sense of purpose and meaning brings us joy no matter what our circumstances are. Okay, verses 9 to 14. So Naaman with his horses and chariots arrived and styled and stopped at Elijah's door and Elijah sent out a servant to meet him with this message. Go to the river Jordan and immerse yourself seven times. Your skin will be healed and you'll be as good as new. Naaman lost his temper and he turned on his heels saying, I thought he'd personally come out and meet me and call on the name of God, wave his hand around in the diseased spot and get rid of the disease. The Damascus rivers, Abana and Fafar, are cleaner by far than any of the rivers in Israel. Why not bathe in them? At least get clean. He stomped off, mad as a hornet. And what I see here is God isn't all that impressed with religious activity. Naaman's expecting to have to do something really difficult, some adventure, something really difficult to do to get healed. You know, at least Elisha's going to go out there and go, and, you know, just shout this super long incantation, right? Instead, he tells them, go dip in that muddy river. And we see is that what really matters to God is trust. Simple. But his servants caught up with him and said, Father, if the prophet has asked you to do something hard and heroic, wouldn't you have done it? So why not this simple wash and be clean? So he did it. He went down and immersed himself in the Jordan seven times following the orders of the holy man. His skin was healed. It was like the skin of a little baby. Believe in my son Jesus. He died for your sins. All of them. He loves you unconditionally. You don't have to earn my love. It's there right now. You don't have to do one more thing 
for me to love you. Just trust me and obey me. Now here at the venue, we talk a lot about non-hype, real, not forced, and how we pray or worship or dress. We talk about being naturally supernatural. So we don't raise our voices when we're praying for the sick or for deliverance. I don't put on my most holy voice when I'm going to prophesy. In other words, we don't believe that God is all that impressed with loud, long, extravagant prayers. The fact is, a lot of the real change that happens in this place happens in really simple, ordinary ways. I have a friend in Houston who decided to investigate Christianity. She was just uh, intrigued by the love that she saw between believers. She was Asian, and she wasn't accustomed to people acting that way when they weren't from their family of origin. She saw blacks hugging whites. She saw Hispanics hugging and kissing Asians. She saw Republicans and Democrats in the same church during the president election year and being staying best friends. It seemed strange to her, and she liked it. And she's investigating Christianity. You know, as the world watches us be what we normally and naturally are as Christians, it changes things. When we hug one another, when we care about one another, when we bring money to give to some people we don't even know that live in New Orleans. It isn't great religious activity. It isn't necessarily even seeing a miracle or having an amazing preacher at your church. It's a dozen little things that add up that speak of God's reality. So I want to finish with these two simple things that God values from the text. Verses 16 to 17. He then went back to the holy man, and he and his entourage stood before him and said, I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God anywhere on earth other than the God of Israel. That verse just is amazing. In gratitude, let me give you a gift. As God lives, Elijah replied, the God whom I serve, I'll take nothing from you. Naaman tried his best to get him to take something, but he wouldn't do it. If you won't take anything, said Naaman, let me ask you for something. Give me a load of dirt, as much as a team of donkeys can carry, because I'm never again going to worship any god other than God. You know, God loves it when we get out of the way when we let our friends and family see it has nothing to do with me, when we make space for this loving and merciful, merciful, beautiful God to be seen. I know now beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God anywhere on earth other than the God of Israel. Wow. Elijah gets out of the way. He is not the superhero. God is. And he makes it really clear, don't pay me anything because I didn't heal you. It wasn't me. It was our beautiful, inclusive God. God wants us 
to be used. He wants to use us in the kingdom works. And that's really clear from looking at this passage. Here is this little slave girl, and he uses her to speak of him. He wants us to use us to love people, to give freely of our service and care. It's not complicated. It's as simple as, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come to my community group? There's some nice people there. Our little deeds matter to God. When we sponsor a child through compassion, that matters to God. When we open up our facilities, like we are going to this fall, and collect thousands and thousands of boxes to little children all over the world in Jesus' name, it matters to him. When we make a meal for a homebound elderly person or a family with a new, ma- new baby, it matters to him. When we send a note of encouragement or anonymous card with money for someone who's unemployed, it matters to God. When we care for our children in the nursery, it matters to God. Little things matter to God. And I don't know your stories. A lot of your stories, I don't know. I don't know the little things you're doing all week long at work, in your neighborhood, to the child that comes to your door with your friend that has no place to play. I don't know what you're doing, but they matter to God. He sees them. You matter to him. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31, it says, Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you were called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential. Not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, come from God by way of Jesus Christ. God chooses the insignificant things of life because it communicates something about how he is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus, right? And Jesus was this super humble guy that was born in this no-town Bethlehem and raised in an even more obscure village called Nazareth. And he has a common job as a carpenter. And he collects around him some nobodies, men that would not be considered important in their society nor ours, to do his kingdom work. We all qualify. And then he dies a scandalous, criminal, torturous life on the cross. He just dies there, hidden and humble. And these are the fundamental characteristics of our God and of his church. So here we are, followers of Christ, saying, I want to be more like Jesus in all ways. And so I want you to know, he does too. So let's listen to the Holy Spirit and agree with him to care about what matters to him. Okay, I'm just going to pray.
Holy Spirit, would you just now, um, I'm going to give you space, Holy Spirit, to speak to your people about what they're doing that really matters to you. And he wants to tell you thank you. Thank you, son. Thank you, daughter. I see that. And it matters to me. And Father, I ask, Papa, I ask that you would unhook us from the lies of the world to try to tell us that other things matter, that they're just traps. They're sucking the life out of us. And they won't carry us, Lord, in times of suffering and loss. Merciful Holy Spirit, would you unhook your people? If you want to be unhooked of whatever you're hooked on that really doesn't matter to God, would you just stand? We're not going to shame you or even ask you what that is. Just stand. That's a place of trust and obedience to God. It's like Naaman. Just go to the river and dip seven times. The invitation is just stand, son. Just stand, daughter. I want to set you free. Holy Spirit, you see your children and you have such love and compassion and you're merciful and you let uh, these who have stood before you know I see you. Thank you for trusting me. I set you free. I unhook you because of my son. And our love for you is great. So be free in Jesus' name from any entrapment of the evil one over your heart, over your body, over your mind, over your future. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
All right, so if you guys want some prayer about anything going on in your life, you can always come. There will be nice people here to pray for you. Um, and really, do be praying about community groups and which one you should attend. Um, community is part of a spiritual practice that will help us to grow in him. And um, incidentally, mine starts next Sunday, so you have to make up your decision in the next seven days so you don't miss the first one. Okay? God bless you, and we'll see you next week.